Well, buenos dias. Good morning. Yes, I know. I probably did that not so bad, or was that okay? Hi, there are Spanish speakers here. That makes me nervous. I bring you greetings from Panama. Uh, before I get into the message this morning, I want to just, first of all, bring you greetings from Panama, and I, I, I've got a few pictures here for you that I want to show you. As many of you know, we had a team of six of us, uh, leaders from our church who were there. I think I have a picture of us in a van. We're, we're about ready to head downtown. Uh, some of you, if you've been following the blog, you might have uh, seen this, but there's Aner and Herlesa, two of our missionary couples of the team of six that's down in Panama. Uh, Marianne, Brian Weens, uh, Marianne is our missions pastor, Brian Weens is our, our Broadway site pastor, uh, Sue Enns, Jim Davidson, they're on council, and then Ryan Epp, who's been down to Panama many times, he's part of our church and also leads now as a missions mobilizer with MB Mission. And uh, so that was us heading downtown. The next picture just shows us the skyline of Panama City. Uh, if you've been to Panama before, you'll recognize uh, Trump Tower in the background. I won't point it out for you. Uh, but the uh, beautiful part of old uh, Panama there and uh, the downtown uh, part. This was a, a family reunion. This was a, a, a trip of leaders to leaders. And so we had a number of leaders from our church meeting with leaders uh, down there. And we wanted to go down there and uh, to first of all celebrate what God has been doing in this uh, partnership over the last 13, 14 years, uh, to also just encourage one another in our, in our faith, and then uh, also uh, to just plan and pray together for the future in, in terms of what the future holds for this. And so I would say that it exceeded our expectations in all kinds of, of ways. The next picture, if you were following the blog, you would have seen this one. You might have wondered about what is going on here. So last Sunday morning at exactly this time, we were in that room in what's called the Wandia Center in part of Panama City, and we were meeting with a whole bunch of the Waunan people. There's a whole bunch of churches that came together. Uh, we had an a afternoon of celebration and all kinds of things. Emerson Cardozo from Brazil uh, was there as well, and, and so this was him actually giving greetings from Brazil to the, to the Waunan people. So I want to steal his idea, and I want to give greetings to you. So I want you to stand where you are for a minute. This will be relatively painless. And so... This is a greeting from Panama. So I want you to put your arms out really wide, and then I want you to just sort of wrap them around yourself. Okay? There. You've just had a hug from Panama. Is that okay? There you go. Now you can sit down. So that's what that picture uh, was all about. The next picture just shows uh, not everybody was here. It was a little bit chaotic, but we got most people together, and this was a picture of our leaders uh, that afternoon. And so uh, we just had a tremendous time together. Uh, uh, most of us in the team uh, got back a couple of days ago. Uh, I managed to stay healthy while I was there and got a cold as soon as I got home. So if I'm avoiding some of you this morning, it's for your own good. Uh, Marianne, welcome back. You just got back last night. Marianne stayed a few extra days and uh, did some follow-up there. And so uh, it's just really good to be home. And we will let you know there'll be a time at some point later on to give you a much more detailed uh, insight into it if you're interested in following up in that way. If you still want to look, there's a, the blog on our website that gives pictures and some of the story of what we did and why we were there, and just encourage you to, to read that. Well, today we're continuing in our series uh, of, called Follow Me, and we're in this series of discipleship steps and, and talking about what it means to, to follow Jesus. And uh, I want to start by just... Uh, Reminding us of a book, some of you are, are really familiar with a book by Gary Chapman uh, called The Five Love Languages. How many of you read that or are familiar with that book? Yeah, lots of hands. 
Yeah, well, Gary Chapman did us a great favor many years ago uh, in writing this book in a number of ways. It's a book that applies uh, to couples, uh, to singles, uh, to families, co-workers, uh, any kind of relationships, just uh, understanding how we relate to each other. He's had many sequels of this book. Uh, I think he's done one for How to Love Your Pet probably as well too. I don't know. Um, but one of the gifts that this book gave us was this understanding that giving and receiving of love uh, has many expressions. And that the way that we give love and that the way that we receive love is very different. So some of you, probably men, uh, you know, maybe you've had chapters of this book read out loud to you. Maybe very loud. But the reality is, is that we can all learn that giving and receiving love is different. Even as we talk about this discipleship step and how Jesus expresses love and how we would receive it. On my recent trip, just coming back from Panama, we were in the Toronto airport and I, I saw right by the gate there was a Rocky Mountain chocolate store, if you're familiar with that one. And I bought a caramel apple for Lisa. Now, I know that receiving gifts isn't her highest love language, but you buy her a caramel apple and that is like right up there. Okay, so that was like a big win for me. And I know that. But, but sadly, that has not always been the case for me. Um, years ago, I was on another trip to Thailand, and while I was there, I saw these really nice, beautiful pearl earrings, and I thought, boy, that would be a really nice gift for Lisa. And in Thailand, pearls are actually fairly inexpensive, so they're quite accessible for me. So anyways, I, I bought these nice earrings. I thought they were really nice. And yet, upon giving them to her, I soon realized that she really doesn't like pearls, and also, she doesn't have pierced ears. <laughs> I mean, who knew that? <laughs> we had only been married 18 years at that time. So my memory and my emotional sensitivity being what it is, about five or six years later, I was on another trip, and I saw this other pair of really nice earrings, and I thought, that would be a great idea. Those would look so great on her. Until I remembered when I saw the look on her face as I gave them to her. And she looked at me like I was from another planet and simply said, thank you. So my next gift for Lisa will include a gift card for body piercing. And I think she will really like that. So the point is not how lousy a husband I am. But the point is, is that we all express love and we all receive love in different ways. And the second step that we're looking at in this series is uh, about to experience and model Jesus' love. And we've been already a couple of weeks in this step. We're taking about three weeks for each one. And again, these discipleship steps are not exhaustive. In other words, they don't cover everything about discipleship. They're not perfect. Uh, there's things that are missing from here, I'm sure. But they're extremely helpful. They help us understand and give some really practical handles of what we see in Scripture, and especially as we follow the life of Jesus and how He discipled others. And we can see some of the things that Jesus did so effectively that helps us have some really practical things to understand and to do in our desire to disciple one another uh, as a church. Two weeks ago, Maureen... Uh, taught on this and started off the second step, and she taught from 1 John chapter 4. 
And this truth that our, our source and our ability to love others comes from the love of God, the extravagant love of God, and what He has shown us. And it's only out of understanding that and receiving that that we have something to offer uh, to others. Last week, if you were here, Kevin and James had powerful demonstrations about the purpose of the law and what it cannot do and how it cannot make us right with God and that we cannot earn His love and how the law just reveals our sinfulness and reveals our need for a Redeemer and reveals the reason why God sent His one and only Son to do what only Jesus could do. And so today, we want to look at this, uh, at a surprising story of love that Jesus taught his disciples. A story that, for many of us, if you've grown up in the church, is, church is very familiar to us. And some of the challenges, even, of this story and understanding it more deeply today is that, in some ways, we become too familiar with the story. And, and not understanding how the original hearers would have heard this story and the impact that it would have had on them. Uh, Tim Geddert, in his book, Double Take, he, he talks about this and how we've lost the shocking aspect of this story. And so we want to look at, at some of that today and understand it in a little bit more uh, detail. So I'd encourage you to turn to Luke chapter 10, and we're going to look at, at, the, at a story there that, again, is, is well known. But before I, I step into that, I want to just say, as I, as I look at these texts and study them to preach on these texts again, one of the things that you do is you look at the context and the, and the chapters and the verses around it and understand what's going on uh, around where this story is told and what's happening. And as I was looking at, at Luke chapter 9 and Luke chapter 10 and these two chapters, what struck me was how remarkable these are like discipleship workshops by Jesus. I mean, if you just look at Luke chapter 9 and Luke chapter 10, uh, first of all, you can find all four of our discipleship steps in there, some of them multiple times. But, but Jesus was just the master discipler. And so in Luke 9 and 10, he's, he's doing this teaching and understanding, helping his disciples understand discipleship in such a better way. Years ago, Reggie McNeil wrote a book, and he, he talked about Jesus' primary means of discipling was kind of three phases. And he said, train, deploy, debrief. That Jesus would train his disciples in something specific to the ministry, then he would deploy them and kind of send them out to do the work of the ministry or, or just sort of hand off a, an expectation or responsibility. Think of the feeding of the 5,000 when they came to him and, and said, okay, we don't have enough you know, food to feed. And he says, well, you feed them. And, and so he just kind of puts it on them and puts them in the hot spot of ministry. And then thirdly, that he would debrief them, that he would actually kind of gather them together at the end of their ministry and he would kind of talk through uh, what it is that happened. And again, if you look at Luke chapter 9 and 10, you see that, that method uh, throughout uh, these texts. It's the, same, it's the same method that we use with our short-term missions teams every time we send teams out, including the team that just went. Uh, Marianne had times of, of training. We did orientation. We, we trained and prepared to understand the context, to understand why we were going, what we were doing, what we would be doing. Um, you're deployed, you go out and you experience and you do, and then you come back and, and in the weeks ahead, our team will gather together and do some debrief and kind of reflect on, okay, what did God teach us? And so you see that same pattern of discipleship that happens here in Scripture that, that Jesus is teaching his disciples. And, and so as we've talked about, these discipleship steps are not sort of compartmentalized. They all interweave and they, they overlap each other all the time. And so even today, 
as I'm talking about things about the second one, I mean, what we just talked about was Jesus training, one, training his disciples in obedience. They all continually overlap, but there are some distinctives to each one, and so we hope that you, you will see that as well. But if you look at the start of chapter 9, just as an example, it says how Jesus you know, called together his 12 disciples, and he gave them power and authority, and then he sent them out. And so he trained them, he equipped them, and then he sent them out. And then later he debriefs them. If you look at the beginning of, of chapter 10, it says the Lord chose 72 other disciples, and he sent them out, and he sent them in pairs. But first of all, he equipped them, and he trained them, and he prepared them, and he sends them out in pairs, and then away they go. And then they come back, and they debrief their experience. And Jesus kind of walks them through this. So I just want you to understand that uh, in this series, we want to be looking at what did Jesus do in discipling others. And that's where really these discipleship steps come out of is looking at what Jesus did and how we can also be discipled by Jesus, discipled by others in our context, and be intentional about discipling others, that there are steps that we can take to do that in order to be more effective. Okay, I'm going to say one other thing before I get into the text for today, because uh, it struck me as I was reading these chapters preceding it, and I'd never seen this before. But there's a verse as we, uh, we're going to look at the story of the Good Samaritan today. And there's a, there's a passage, a short passage that I'd never really noticed before until this week. And it's at the end of chapter 9, uh, starting in verse 51. And I think, to me, it feels like a setup. It feels like Jesus is kind of just setting up his disciples for something that he's going to do later. But here is what happens. It says, as the time drew near for him to ascend to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead to a Samaritan village to prepare for his arrival. But the people of the village did not welcome Jesus because he was on his way to Jerusalem. And then James and John saw this and they said to Jesus, Lord, should we call down fire from heaven to burn them up? But Jesus turned and rebuked them, so they went on to another village. So there's a couple of things that you see happening here. Is that they're on their way to Jerusalem and the Samaritans knew that, the village knew that, so they they knew that they, these were Jewish people and they didn't welcome them. The disciples, if you read back at the beginning of chapter 9, Jesus had just given them this new power and authority that they were now walking in and they were like, oh my goodness, there is this power and authority that we have in the kingdom of God that Jesus has given them. And so when they get kind of rebuffed by the Samaritan village, they're like, hey, Jesus, we can take care of this. Can we just send down fire on these people and we'll just take them out? And he rebukes them. But what that to me, foreshadows is this animosity between Samaritans and Jews and how Jesus, in a sense, kind of sets up the story that he's going to tell uh, very quickly. So let's, let's turn to Luke chapter 10, starting in verse, in verse 25. And we see that an expert in the law asks a really important question. In some translations, it says a lawyer we're not sure, is this a lawyer, like we would understand a lawyer, or is this a religious expert in the law, like the Pharisees and Sadducees? We're not sure. It seems to imply someone slightly different, but he's an expert in religious law, and, and he asks Jesus this question, what should I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus replies with a question, as he so often did. He says, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? And the man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul, and all your strength, and all your mind, and you must love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus told him, do this, and you will live. Now, lots of stuff 
even going on right here. I mean, first of all, this is, this is the man quoting uh, this Deuteronomy chapter 6, which any good Jewish person would know by heart. They recite this daily. So he would have recited this daily. He knows this intuitively. Of, of just, that you need to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then just as Jesus did in Matthew 22, if you look at the Matthew 22 account, when Jesus is asked this question another time, he gives the answer. Here he has the expert of the law give the answer. But in Matthew 22, Jesus responds and he says the very same thing. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he adds from Leviticus 19, and you must love your neighbor as yourself. And so Jesus puts these two things together, and we have what we call the great commandment. And so now we have this expert in religious law coming to Jesus, trying to understand how, what, what, what does love look like? Like, what am I supposed to do to like, inherit eternal life? And, and Jesus gets him to quote what he already knows from Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19, and he recites back to Jesus this great commandment. And Jesus affirms him. Jesus says, that is right. He says, do this and live. Now, it's interesting because what the man asked was, how do I inherit eternal life? And what Jesus didn't say was, well, you need to pray a prayer. You need to receive me into your life. You need to confess your sins and so on and so on. He didn't say that. He gets the man to quote what he knows from his Jewish heritage about what it means to love God. And out of experiencing the love of God, this overflow that comes out of your life, that gives evidence to the relationship that you have with God. And Jesus says, good answer. Do this and you will live. It's interesting. So the man, he tries to justify his actions. And then he asks this question in verse 29. And he says, so who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? And in some ways, it, it almost feels like a, a deflection. In ancient Jewish literature, there was writings and teachings that the Jewish people actually, that their neighbors were only other Jews, fellow Jews. And that they didn't have to actually have to show love or compassion for those who were not Jews. In other words, they're just non-neighbors. And so again, a teacher, an expert in the religious law would have understood this, that, that well, I really don't have to love other people who aren't like me. I just need to love the other Jewish people. And so he asks this question in some ways, sort of maybe a deflection, but it even says here in the text that it's a, he's trying to justify his actions or his inactions. And he's asking, well, well, who is my neighbor? And it reminds me of me, actually, and sometimes us, when we, we know that we are called to obedience and we know what God has asked us to do and we start to rationalize, we start to justify either our actions or inactions. And, and so I think that this leader was doing a very similar thing and deflecting it with the question. But then Jesus resta- responds with this story. Now, it's not stated in the text that it's a parable. Jesus doesn't say that it's a parable. We don't know that. We've often thought of it as a parable. It could be a true story that Jesus is conveying, but we just don't know because it doesn't say that here in the text. And so here's how Jesus replies to his question about who is my neighbor. He says, a Jewish man was traveling on a trip from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. And they stripped him of his clothes, they beat him up, 
and they left them half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along, uh, but when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. And then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. And going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. And then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, Take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. And Jesus asked, Now which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by the bandit? And the man replied, The one who showed him mercy. And then Jesus said, Yes. Now go and do the same. Hmm. So again, as we know, context matters. As we read this story, as Jesus tells this account, the context of this story is significant. The man, it says, is coming from Jerusalem. New Living Translation that I was reading from often tries to be helpful and add things so we can understand, so it says that he was a Jewish man. In other translations, it doesn't say that he was a Jewish man. But he likely was a Jewish man, because I think that's Jesus' whole point, is that, and he was coming from Jerusalem, going to Jericho, a very well-known road that was traveled from there, and so somebody coming from there would have been Jewish. The readers would have understood him to be Jewish. This was a well-known road that was very dangerous. It's kind of like going into the bad part of town. And people knew that. They knew there was risks involved. And so this Jewish man is coming from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's about a 17 uh, kilometer or 17 mile, I'm not sure, uh, distance. And he was mugged, beaten, robbed, and left for dead. And then it says how a priest came along also Jewish, because he's a priest, serves in the temple. So a Jewish priest comes along and sees a Jewish man beaten on the side of the road, and he doesn't help him. Now remember, the Jewish literature would teach that your neighbor is your fellow Jews. This Jewish priest would have known this, but he still disregards it because he sees the man beaten and bloody, and he continues to walk. Then it says how the Levite comes along in some translation, or the temple assistant also a Jew, because he works in the temple. And so another Jew comes along, a leader in the church, and comes along and sees this man beaten on the side of the road, and he too just keeps going. And then it says how a Samaritan came along. Now again, most, many translations just say a Samaritan. NLT, again trying to be overly helpful, says a despised Samaritan comes along. Which is actually true. And helping us to understand some of the relationship that is there. And that is actually the shocking part of the story that I think is one of Jesus' main points. That he takes someone who would have been despised by that original audience, that would have been despised by the expert of the law who is actually asking the question, who is my neighbor? And he takes the type of person, a Samaritan, who the Jewish hearers would have been appalled at, that Jesus makes him the hero of the story which I think was Jesus' whole point, to shock them, to think differently about what does love look like? And what does it mean to express love? And what does it mean to actually inherit eternal life in that way because of the love that you have uh, from God? So because 
this story has become so well known. Not only in church culture, but most people in secular culture, if you ask them about the story of the Good Samaritan, they could tell you the essence of the story. And so because this story has become so pervasive over the centuries as a really simple story of what love looks like, people have come to understand Samaritans in a certain way. They've come to understand Samaritans as just really good people because, I mean, you're, this is a good Samaritan. All Samaritans are good is the equation that they make. And this Samaritan helps this person who is hurt and wounded. And it's sort of like us Canadians, if you're Canadian, as we travel the world, and it's like, oh yeah, Canadians are really nice. They say sorry all the time. They open the door for you. Canadians just really nice people. Maybe true, not true. But in a similar way, I think over the centuries, Samaritans have been seen in a certain light that Samaritans are just good. They're good people because we have the story of the good Samaritan. That's not the point of the story. In fact, it's the exact opposite of what is what, what Jesus is saying, is that these are despised people, hated people, that have animosity with the Jewish people. They are their worst enemies. And so Jesus is wanting them to be shocked by it. So the idea of a good Samaritan to the original hearers would have been an oxymoron. Those two words don't go together, good and Samaritan. It would have been unthinkable. The Samaritans were a mixed race. They were contaminated by intermarriage with the Assyrians. They were of foreign blood, and they worshipped false idols, according to the Jews. Josephus, a writer of a Jewish writer, he says that they are opportunists. When the Jews enjoy prosperity and favor, the Samaritans align with the Jews and say, yeah, yeah, we're of Jewish descent. descent. When, when the Jews are in a bad space and it's not going well for them, they say, oh, no, 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 we're, we're Assyrian. We don't actually associate with Jews. Now, whether that's true or not, Josephus, as a writer, a Jewish writer, probably biased, but says that they're opportunists. And so they're, they are some of the very people that if you're familiar with Ezra and Nehemiah, the rebuilding of the temple and the rebuilding of the wall, those who opposed the rebuilding of the wall were some of these very Samaritans. And so this is the history. This is the background. This is the story that Jesus is telling. And here is this Samaritan who gives extravagantly of his time and his money to help a Jew, his enemy. And he loves him deeply. It says that he sees him and he has compassion on him. His heart is connected to this man. And so when Jesus asks, who is the true neighbor? The expert of the law, after hearing the story, he can't even say the word Samaritan. He simply says, the one who showed mercy. And Jesus says, you're right. Now go and do the same. When we were in Panama, and the last picture that I showed you was a picture of uh, leaders from our team and from the Wanan Church and, and the missionary leaders that are down there in Panama. One of the people that you would have seen in the picture, you won't recognize him, is, his name is Diriano. And he is uh, a successful businessman. He's been a very successful businessman in the village of Capiti, which some of our teams, some of you have been to that village. And uh, he uh, was one who had grown very far from God and very distant from anything to do with the church, uh, but was a very successful businessman. He owned the largest bar in town, was very successful, made a lot of money, had a small little shop right beside that bar, and over the course of time, he too also became an alcoholic, and he struggled with that, and he was just, in, in so many ways, he was just far from God. But that that bar and that whole context was the thing that was just keeping him so far from God. 
One day, some disciples, some young men or young adults who were part of Aner's discipleship program in Javiza went back to their village of Kapiti and just started to talk to this man, Diriano. And they started to tell him about Jesus and to love him. And uh, he started to listen. Eventually, Aner started to disciple Diriano as well too. And after a little while, Diriano said to Aner, he says, you know, what? would it be okay if I actually just let these young guys disciple me because they, I understand them more than I understand you, he said. And Aner's like, yes, 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 of course, go. So these two young, I think it was two or three young men from the village continue to just disciple and love on this bar owner whose life at this point had been a real mess. Something happened one day, and I don't know exactly the details of the story, but he was so overwhelmed by the love of Christ and, and saw the gospel for what it is and saw God for who he was and it transformed him. And he went back uh, to his facility, and he started to dismantle it right then and there. And he started to break things up and to smash things and tear apart this thing that he had built up for so many years. And the village actually thought he went crazy. And then eventually, he started to build up the store beside him, and he closed down the bar, and uh, he started building up the store and getting involved in the church. And here last week, We hear some of his story, and he's still quite young in the faith, only about three years in the faith. But here's a guy who had just encountered the love of God in such an incredible way by these young men, and now he wanted to express that and serve others. And so now he's actually essentially the youth pastor in Kapiti and serving there. So here he was sitting in this group and part of our discussions together. And for me, just such an example of somebody who's experienced the love of Jesus And now wants to model it for the other youth of the village and actually be an expression of God's love to others. So this is what Jesus is teaching in so many ways. This is what Jesus teaches through this story and this parable of the Good Samaritan. And challenging us to ask a number of questions. First of all, who would we put in the story as the hero? Who is the person that would be the farthest from us in terms of being like us maybe even an enemy of us in whatever way we would frame that, who, if Jesus was telling the story to us personally, to me personally, who would Jesus put in the story as the hero? And what would that teach us about what it means to love? It also begs the question for us to ask as well, just as this expert in the law, who is my neighbor? And sometimes we can rationalize and we can philosophize and we can kind of think in broad terms of my neighbor, and if we make everybody our neighbor, well, then nobody's our neighbor. And I think a good principle to start with is actually who is your neighbor who lives next door to you? Who are the people who actually live beside you? Do you actually know any of their names? Do you know uh, who they are? Do you know their kids? Being a good neighbor and showing the love of Christ comes in all kinds of forms and shapes and sizes. And I know that many of you are exceptional neighbors. You have block parties. You share your life and your faith with people. You bring food to people. You care for them. God bless you in that. I have some neighbors around me who bless me abundantly. And I don't know where they're exactly at in their faith, but they clear my driveway. They cut my grass at times. Uh, One time in a snowstorm, it's like Arden comes by, and at 7 in the morning on a Sunday, I see the lights of his tractor, and he's clearing my driveway as I'm sitting there sipping coffee, wondering how I'm going to get to church. And he says, the pastor's got to get to church. We can all be good neighbors in different ways. 
of just knowing who our neighbors are, blessing them, allowing them to bless us, and living out the love that Jesus calls us to. Second thing, another thing I would just say, that a question that we can ask is, what do we do when we see people in crisis and in trouble? How do we actually come alongside them? There's a psychological or a social psychological phenomenon called the bystander effect. Some of you are familiar with that. And that simply is, is that we are less likely to offer help when others are present because we assume that others will respond. Everybody assumes that others will respond and take care of it. We see the need, we see the crisis, but we just assume that others will respond. And I think what Jesus is telling us in this story is that we need to have compassion and we need to respond in some form as we see people in crisis. And we all struggle with that because it means giving up our time, being inconvenienced, giving up some money. It comes a sacrifice. But that's exactly what the Good Samaritan did in this story. So we see in this story and we see in discipleship that there's always a vertical and a horizontal dimension. We could draw from this story, even from what Jesus said to this expert of the law, well, how do we inherit the kingdom of heaven? How do we inherit eternal life? Well, we just do good works. No, that's not the point of the story. Jesus is saying if you really understand and have a relationship with God, good works will flow out of you. You know, doing these things doesn't necessarily make us a disciple. But an absence of these things likely reveals that we're not. And that's what Jesus is telling. We don't know what was going on in the Samaritan's life or his relationship. But we do know that when we have experienced the love of Jesus, when we understand what God has done for us that only he can do through Jesus Christ on the cross, and we understand the sinfulness and the depravity of ourselves and our need for a Savior, it's out of that extravagant love that we can love others extravagantly. I invite the worship team, if they would come up, as I would conclude in prayer. So Heavenly Father, we thank you that you give us opportunities every day to be a good neighbor. And God, we just confess together, I confess, that there are many times when I just walk by. And Lord, I pray that you would give all of us a heart of compassion and help us to see what you see. Help us to see the needs around us and then help us to be wise and compassionate of how we might meet those needs, even of those who are immediately around us, Lord. Help us to be good neighbors. Help us to love extravagantly. And Lord Jesus, I pray that for each one of us, we would know and experience your extravagant love for us so that out of that we can serve others. That it's not of good works that save us, but it's good works that are an expression of the salvation that has saved us. And so Lord, we thank you. We praise you. We pray that you'd help us to walk in this. Help us to follow you, Lord Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.